You're listening to the podcast of High Rock Haverhill, where we seek to connect to God personally, God's people, and God's purposes. You can join us every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. and learn more about us at highrockhaverhill.org. Hello, my name is Joel. Nice. And as you're able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Today's reading comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verses 1 through 12. Please follow along with the words um, on the screen behind me or simply listen as the scriptures are read. Again, it's John chapter 8, verses 1 through 12. Following the reading, I invite you to respond with the singing of the doxology. Uh, Children, first grade and younger, will be invited to the back of the room for a kid's rock at the time. Over here. Hear the word of the Lord. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning, he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something that they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer, so he stood up again and said, All right, but let the first one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the women. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them come to condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. Jesus spoke to the people once more and said, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because you'll have light that leads to life. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. I'm not going to lie, it feels pretty surreal being up here right now. Um, just for context, this is my first time preaching, so <laughs> hope it goes okay. <laughs> and uh, this morning, I want to let you all in on a secret. Public speaking of any kind, group presentations, presiding, preaching, scares the crap out of me. <laughs> I'm allowed to say crap in a sermon, right? <laughs> And even when it doesn't, I start to get nervous that I'll look nervous, which then just makes me actually nervous. So it's a really unfortunate cycle. (laughs) But I was excited to jump into preaching for the first time during this series in particular for a couple of reasons. John just so happens to be my favorite book of the Bible. And I think that this close encounters angle we've been exploring has really captured a lot of the heart of John's experience with Jesus as one of his closest disciples, as well as John's purpose for writing about who Jesus is and what he does. And this passage is a special one for me. In high school, despite my fear of being up front, I did something crazy and auditioned for the school play. It was something I'd always wanted to do, and I finally gathered the courage to try out. And I was cast in our production of Godspell. My solo moment consisted of singing to Jesus as the woman caught in adultery. 
And since then, I have felt personally connected to her and her story. And I'm so glad that I'm able to step into her journey again with you all today. So why don't we take a moment to pause, to feel the fullness of whatever emotions you may be feeling. Joy, exhaustion, hopefulness, sadness, fear, and allow God to engage with you wherever you're at. After a moment of silence, I'll continue our time together with prayer. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are with us and for us. I pray that you would fill our hearts this morning with your truth and your grace. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So I've talked a little bit about my fear of being up front, but as we continue, I want to talk about a different kind of fear, the fear of being exposed. I love going to the movie theater, experiencing movies on the grand scale they were made for. And one of the most recent movies I saw was called The Goldfinch. I didn't know anything about the movie going into it, except that the lead actor is one of my current favorites, which meant I wasn't prepared at all for the emotional desolation I was about to experience. <laughs> so in case you're planning to see the movie at some point, here's your official spoiler alert. I will do my best to not give too much away, and don't worry, I'm definitely not gonna give away the ending. The Goldfinch is about a boy named Theo who goes with his single mother to an art museum to see her favorite painting, The Goldfinch, by Carol Fabricius. Fabricius was a real-life painter who studied under Rembrandt, but was killed in an explosion in the city of Delft in the Netherlands. Only about 12 of his paintings survived the blast, and The Goldfinch is actually one of them. Similar to the real-life Delft explosion, while Theo and his mom are inside the museum, a bomb goes off. And when Theo comes to, he sees the painting in the rubble and picks it up to show it to her. In his confusion from the blast, Theo leaves the museum with the painting and goes to his apartment to meet his mother. Theo soon discovers, though, that his mom died in the explosion. And while he keeps it wrapped up and hidden away and never even unwraps it to look at it, the painting becomes a strange source of comfort for Theo. And yet, he lives racked with guilt in constant fear that someone will discover that he's stolen a priceless work of art. And in the aftermath of all his loss and grief, still dwelling in his guilt over the stolen painting, Theo makes some pretty unhealthy choices and builds his entire life on lie after lie after lie. As an adult, he works in an antique shop where he's secretly been selling off fakes to wealthy clients until a client discovers what he's done and confronts Theo. And the client mentions a rumor he's heard about a painting of a goldfinch stolen on the same day of an explosion that Theo just so happened to be caught in. Theo plays it off well and denies any wrongdoing, but for a split second, you can see the fear in his eyes. Someone knows. And Theo's carefully crafted image, built on a foundation of guilt and fear, begins to crumble. What about you? Have you ever felt like Theo? Like you've built your life on a lie? Maybe you have a tendency to tell white lies, to build up your self-image, or to protect the feelings of a loved one. Maybe you cheated on a test or a project at work, and because of it, you got a leg up on your peers. Maybe you have a secret side to your life, or a secret addiction, one that you've been able to keep hidden from your friends and family. Maybe there are things that you've done that you haven't ever told to another human being, because if they only knew, 
you would be rejected. Now, I know some of these examples are pretty heavy, but that's because our hidden lives are weighty. And if you're like me, you carry them around every second of every day, praying for something to help us lighten the burden of our guilt, all the while terrified that we'll be found out. Theo lived in constant fear that he would be discovered, just like the fear that you might be living in, or the fear that the woman from our passage in John chapter 8 felt when she was caught with a man who was not her husband. Only for her, the game was up. She was caught, her secret out, her guilt exposed. Well, the section of John begins like so many others. It's early in the morning, but Jesus is teaching, so a crowd is gathered. Now, at this point in his ministry, Jesus has already made some of the Pharisees angry. He's driven the money changers and tax collectors out of the temple courts. He's been healing people on the Sabbath of all days. And he's been claiming to have the same authority as God himself. These particular Jewish leaders are itching to find something that they can use to get rid of him. So they set a trap, using a nameless woman that they could care less about. And their charge of the woman is explicit. She was caught in the very act of adultery. Now, the only way that they could make this claim is if they had sufficient evidence. Today, we just have to convince the majority of a jury that a crime was probable. But the law of Moses required two witnesses to see the exact same act at the exact same time so that suspicious husbands couldn't accuse their wives unnecessarily. It wasn't enough for them to see two people leaving a house together or even to see two people lying in bed together. The witnesses had to have unmistakably seen the accused in a compromising position. The two witnesses' stories of what took place had to be identical down to every last detail. Such evidence virtually required the witnesses to set a trap, which meant almost no one was ever actually accused of adultery or convicted of adultery. Now, in Jesus' day, the punishment for adultery was severe. The Pharisees remind Jesus, the law of Moses says to stone her, and they're right. The law is very clear. Yet notice how the law of Moses applies not only to the woman, but to the man caught in adultery. He too is meant to be stoned. His absence here only reinforces that these Pharisees' main goal isn't to bring justice, or the man would have been brought before Jesus too. Their motives are reinforced again as they bring the woman to Jesus before a crowd and heap public shame on her. They could have just as easily kept her to one side and brought her case to Jesus privately. But they have no interest in a fair trial. They want to trap Jesus in front of a crowd. And to their credit, the trap is a pretty good one. They ask him, the law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? Now, if Jesus responds simply with grace and lets the woman go free, they can again claim that he must not be from God because he tramples on and outright refuses to uphold the law of God. On the other hand, Rome controlled the government at the time, so they tended to not appreciate Jewish leaders handing out capital punishments as if they ran the place. This is why the Romans, not the Jews, passed the judgment to execute Jesus. Rome was very much in charge, and the Jewish people knew it. So if Jesus responds with judgment and gives them permission to stone her, not only do they see the law fulfilled, but they can place the blame of the decision on Jesus alone. Not only that, but if he rains down shame and punishment on her, he would be going against everything he seemingly claims to stand for. 
For all his talk of love and grace and forgiveness, here he is being a hypocrite, asking the meek and lowly to come to him and then turning on them in their darkest hour. It seems then as if they've gotten the best of him. Judgment versus grace. Isn't that what we struggle with too? How can God take sin seriously and still be about grace? Get ready, I'm going to say a crap in a sermon again. <laughs> How can God just ignore all the crap in our world and in our lives and say it doesn't matter and still be a good God who cares about all the ways that sin hurts us and those around us? How can Jesus be just and righteous and also compassionate and merciful? What these Pharisees fail to take into account is that Christ actually takes sin even more seriously than they do. In fact, the only reason that he took on flesh and dwelt among us was to deal with sin. What they see as a softness on sin is not Jesus condoning sin. Instead, it's an offer of forgiveness, an offer of unconditional love, because he knows that he will ultimately lay down his life to bear the burden of our sin. I think we tend to pick and choose and put more emphasis on one side of Jesus over another. Jesus is love, and therefore sin doesn't really matter. Or Jesus is just, so we better work as hard as we can to be as good as we can so that he's happy with us. Which side of Jesus do you tend to emphasize? Do you tend to see Jesus as a disciplinarian, so you feel pressure to live up to expectations? Or do you see Jesus as a gentle peacekeeper who doesn't really care what you do. He just wants to give out hugs. Now, I, for one, definitely lean more towards the gracious, compassionate side of Jesus, which, if I'm not careful, makes it easy for me to dismiss sin in myself and in those around me. It's not that big of a deal. Judgment versus grace. There's no way that Jesus can win this one, right? So how does he respond? He doesn't at all. Instead, he stoops down to the ground and starts drawing in the dirt with his finger. What? I think if we saw someone mid-conversation bend over and start using their finger to write on the ground, seemingly ignoring what's going on around them, and especially ignoring a question directed specifically to them, we would be pretty confused and maybe even a little offended. So what is Jesus doing? There are all kinds of theories out there about what Jesus was writing. And while I don't think it really matters either way, as an artist myself, my personal favorite theory is that he was doodling. Just drawing some squiggles. <laughs> because whatever he was drawing, his actions brought him, the sinless, perfect, powerful Messiah, onto his knees. He moved in a way that restored the dignity of the woman before him by taking the attention off of her. His posture demonstrated that he would not treat her as beneath him, that he's not offended or surprised by what she's done, that he's willing to step into and engage with the mess and the dirt of her sin, not as the one who stands above her, but as one who's right by her side. So whatever he chose to write, he took a position that spoke of his character and his call to the world. His lack of a verbal response, though, visibly irritated the Pharisees. They saw him stoop down, and they began to demand that he stand up and answer them. So after a minute, or two, or maybe ten, he does. He stands up and says to them, 
All right. But let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stoops back down again and keeps on doodling. And in that one response, he blows the doors off of the trap set for him. Because Jesus isn't saying, in general, which of you is sinless. He's saying something much more specific. In this matter, as it concerns this real person who you've brought here to use for your own purposes, are you innocent? Or are you using her, leveraging her sin to get what you want? With his statement, he's exposing their real motives. They don't care about her or her sin. They don't care about justice or grace. They only want to use her to corner Jesus. So one by one, each and every single one of them drops their stone and walks away. Because none of them have pure motives, which leaves the woman alone with Jesus. Now, she has no choice but to reckon with what's just happened. While she was used as a pawn in the Pharisee's game, there's no denying that she really was caught in the act. Her sin has been laid out for the world to see. She's been found out. Now, I don't know about you, but if it had been me and my secret was out, I would have been scared to death. Scared to death. Up until now, Jesus' focus had been on the Pharisees or on his doodles. But now, his focus was on her. And unfortunately, this wasn't a one-time thing or a mistake she was wishing she could take back. The verb tense of the Greek word here used for caught implies her continuing acts of infidelity. This is a pattern, and potentially why she made an easy target for this group of Pharisees and their test. And we all have those patterns, those things that bring us comfort, our very own goldfinch paintings. So we keep holding on to them, even though we hope that no one will find out even though we know it's keeping us stuck. The thing that if other people knew about us, we know they would judge us for. And we know they would judge us because we judge them for the very same things. We turn into our own version of the Pharisees, eager to bring someone else before Jesus, waiting to see how he decides to punish them. Because then, we know that at least for now, we're safe. The attention is on someone else, and we can keep hiding our own secret shame stuck in our own unhealthy patterns and afraid to show up as we really are with other people and with Jesus. But Jesus responds to us in the same way that he responds to the woman. After all the Pharisees have left, Jesus stands back up from his doodles and he addresses the woman directly. He says to her, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? Now Jesus isn't saying that she's innocent. Instead, with an invitation to honesty, he's asking her to consider the position that she's in. And the woman's response shows that she's experienced something profound. She doesn't stand there making excuses or begging for him to spare her. She doesn't try to slip away. Instead of continuing to try to hide her sin, she accepts that she's been exposed. She responds with a simple, no, Lord. And in just two words, she acknowledges that Jesus holds a different kind of authority, and she waits to hear what he'll say. And with his reply, Jesus shows us what these Pharisees couldn't understand, and what we so often fail to understand when we try to limit Jesus to one side or the other. That because of Jesus, the truth is no longer devoid of grace, and grace is not lacking of the truth. 
And Jesus's words and the order of his words in this moment are really important. He doesn't say to her, don't do it again, because if you do, I will condemn you. That's what justice-oriented people like to say. Change and clean up your act, otherwise we can't accept you. But he also doesn't say what grace-oriented people like to say. Oh, it's no big deal, keep doing what you're doing. Rather, Jesus does both. He acknowledges her sin and freely shows her the way to walk out of darkness and into light. He says to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. He prescribes for her the path to life and life to the fullest. And he offers the same opportunity to each of us because where we deserve condemnation and judgment, he has removed our guilt and stepped into our place to bear the blow of the first stone. We're given the chance to be free of our fear and shame. So we have a choice, a choice to acknowledge the things that are holding us back and face our fear of being known, of being exposed, to acknowledge them and to make a new choice, a choice to believe that light and life is only found in choosing to surrender ourselves to the work of Jesus. Now I can remember the first time I listened to the song I had to sing in Godspell. It's a song called By My Side, and it comes right after Jesus says to the woman, neither do I, go and sin no more. Now, if I'm being completely honest, at first, first listen, the lyrics are weird. <laughs> yeah, there's this thing with a pebble that she puts in her shoe, and at one point she's naming the pebble and talking to it as if it were a person. It's a really weird song. And even after my first couple of listens, I did not get it. I continued to listen to it, though, and the more in character I got, the deeper the message settled in. You see, my character was easily the most fearful of the cast, and yet her bravery and stepping out and the earnestness of her desire to continue walking with Jesus, following wherever he might lead, was inspiring. She knows that she won't actually sin no more, but she also knows that she'll never leave Jesus' side because he has offered her a freedom that can't be found anywhere else. And that weird part about the pebble, it turns out it represents her growing commitment to Jesus, knowing that it will be a test of her willpower to continue choosing to follow him rather than choosing to continue in her sin. Because the core message of this passage is that Jesus holds truth and grace together in a way that no one else can. Jesus really knows us and all of our secrets, and yet he isn't casting stones. He instead takes them for us. So whatever secrets you have, they're not secrets to God. God knows. God knows. As you let that sink in, feel for even a brief moment the terror of being exposed. And then hear Jesus say, I know you, the real you. And yet, I didn't come to condemn you. I came to take your sin to give you life. Go walk in this new life. This morning, are you still trying to pretend like you can hide all your secrets? As long as we choose to not talk about our sin, its power over us remains, and we become less than we were meant to be. Because we won't live the life that God has for us if we're not convinced that God is just and gracious, and therefore safe for each of us. Here in today's story, we see that Jesus is all three. A friend of mine from seminary recently wrote a book about being in the presence of God. And in it, she writes, 
the consequence of the presence of God is that we are found. We are fully seen and fully known. And instead of that being the stuff of nightmares, it becomes our home. So what would it look like for you to take some time this week, rather than waiting to be found out, to instead name the patterns or thoughts or secrets that you're hiding? To write them down in a journal, or to speak them out loud to a counselor, a pastor, a trusted friend, or better yet, to Jesus. To feel the weight of guilt lifted from your shoulders so that you can walk forward into light and life. Because in confession, we fully surrender. It is only when we surrender and approach Jesus with empty hands that we can receive what God has to offer to us. With empty hands, free of the guilt and shame imposed on us by our sin, we receive more than we could ever ask or imagine, the joy of true relationship and reconciliation with our creator. We can receive the power of God's grace for us and for others. We can step into the freedom Jesus has given us and then begin to invite others into the loving safety of God's home. Would you pray with me? Dear Jesus, we come before you full of things that we continue to try to hide. We thank you that instead of condemning us, you take the first stone for us. I pray that we would be able to see you as you are, a perfect representation of grace and truth, and that we would be able to show your grace and your truth to those around us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.